Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I want to begin today in Ephesians chapter 2. We won't be there very long, but I just want to remind you of a, of a verse there that... Uh, I think fits pretty well with what I, I believe the Lord has for us today. And in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning reading in verse 8, you probably know it by heart. It says, For by grace, through faith, you have been saved. By grace, when God initiates saving grace upon us, uh, He is the first actor. And by faith, we respond to that grace that's been imparted to us. And when our faith responds to his grace, that is salvation. So, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. I think the Paul, Paul knows us not only did he know us 2,000 years ago, he knows us today that we're always looking for some way to belong, some way to uh, enhance our resume, some way to say we are good enough or we know enough or we're smart enough, uh, whatever the case may be, to just kind of just press in, just kind of add to uh, God's love for us. But he reminds us that it is by God's grace and our response to that by faith, and by the way, he's the one that allows us to respond by faith. He's the one that opens our eyes and allows us to respond by grace. Through faith, we have been saved. Last week, we looked at the life of Joseph, at least what little bit we can know of Joseph, and how Jesus came into our shame to deliver us from that shame. There's nothing demonstrative, you know, majestic about Jesus' coming into the earth. He came in an obscure place at a very obscure time to an obscure people, uh, to obscure family. In verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, it begins with a, uh, what is called a continuative particle. I know that that may not mean much to you, and I don't expect you to understand all that that is. All that, I, all that I mean to say by that is that that word now connects back to everything that Matthew has just said. And that is so important because he is pretty much saying with all that said, but this word is a little bit different. The, the Greek word is day. D-E, it's used a lot in Scripture, but it, only, it always means that it opposes the persons or the things that are previously mentioned. So this is things being said, but regardless of that, this is true, right? This is where it seems to be going, but instead of that, this. That is what the word day means. It's a continuative particle, but it stands in opposition to everything that was said before. If you read it in English, you probably would get it. If you spent a lot of time on it, you would realize it. But that's the word that I want to focus on really primarily today. Even though these people, or it's kind of like, can you believe this? But 
But here's what really happens. Or in opposition to where you think this story is going. And then Matthew writes about the blessed Mary, the just Joseph, and ultimately the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But he doesn't start there. No, he starts where every Jew would start. He starts with Abraham. So let's start with Abraham as well. This is going to be on the screen, though you were not intended to be able to read it. So I don't want any emails later about your inability to read it. The reason for this is this might be the only sermon that you will ever hear. I've labored over it. That's through the genealogies. I know, buckle up. It's, it's going to be a great one, right? No, I think that there are some things here that the Lord wants for us today as we talk about, you know, awkward Christmas families or it's very obvious passage of scripture I mean it's the very beginning you can't get to the New Testament without Matthew chapter 1 and yet let's be honest when you start reading chronologically through the book of Matthew how many of you start in verse 18 come on all right well, it's, I, I don't blame you really I don't blame you but it's an obscure passage I doubt very few people quote Matthew chapter 1 However, let me ask you some leading questions. Does that make Matthew 1 less inspired? Does it make Matthew 1 less preserved? Does it make Matthew 1 less significant? Maybe, but I'll let you decide that. But there is not a list of names more significant than the opening page of the New Testament in Matthew. What Matthew is, is doing, and, and again, it's important to be reminded, Matthew is writing to a not yet Christian Jewish population. His gospel is to both enlighten traditional Jews and to expose them to the fulfillment of Jesus in their everyday life. He, he's, been around, he's been around the whole time and we just didn't see him. So that's, that's ultimately what Matthew is trying to do. And so it's it's because of that he's trying to connect the claims of this mysterious, miraculous, resurrected Jesus to the real family, to a real Messiah with a real claim to a real throne and a real kingdom. And so he goes back to Abraham because that's one person that every Jew has in common. Whereas if you go to Luke chapter 3, it's Mary's genealogy. We won't get into that today. But Luke actually traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. It's incredible because Luke is writing to Gentiles, the one person we all have in common, Adam. The one person all Jews have in common, Abraham. So the first lesson that we learn from Jesus' genealogy is that God's ways are often unexplainable. God's ways are often unexplainable, and you already know that. But it, in other words, God often does not, nor does he have to provide an explanation for the mysteries of what he does and what he does not do. You, he does not owe you some ability to speak in to how he chooses to do things. And a lot of times that's how our prayers work is we're trying to, to, to get God to do a certain thing the way we think that it ought to be done. But his ways and his thoughts are often without explanation. And I've said this a lot. You look through Scripture, and you, it is hard to find a formula of how God is always going to work in a particular situation. 
For instance, at the very outset of this genealogy, you're left to wonder why God would choose certain individuals, and it's easy to track. I mean, Matthew does a stellar job of tracking through the bloodline here, but, but why would God choose to use certain individuals to carry on his royal line? For instance, if you look at verse 2, again, it's not there. I, don't, I just want you to just see the, the names really is the point of that. But in verse 2, you will see Judah. By the way, I really appreciate this up here. Just, just last week, I talked about being afraid of falling off. And, and look, what, look how nice they are to provide me. I just about fell off. But Judah here is mentioned. And while that might not strike you as odd that Judah is mentioned, it is very important because it should be Reuben that is mentioned. But you wouldn't catch that if you just read it very quickly, but the Jews would have caught it when they read it. And the reason that this is surprising is because if you turn over to Genesis 39, and if you're taking notes, I need you to write all of these verses down because you will want to go back and read them. In Genesis chapter 29, we find that Reuben is the firstborn son of Jacob. In fact, there are three sons that are older than Judah who finds himself in the genealogy of Jesus. Why did God choose Judah and not Reuben or the others? Was he more deserving than his other brothers? If you go back to Genesis chapter 37, you discover that when all of Joseph's brothers decided to throw him into the pit, some of this is just going to be a, a summary of some stories, but all of Joseph's brothers are choosing to, well, to kill him ultimately, but it's, it's, uh, it's Reuben that says, no, 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 let's not kill him outright, let's put him into a pit and the writer of Genesis gives us a clue. It says because Reuben intended to go back later when the other brothers were gone and get Joseph out of the pit. Reuben, he's our guy. Reuben, the older brother, the protector of all the other brothers. But whenever they put him, Reuben is not there when they put him into the pit. And before Reuben gets back, it is Judah who says, we're not going to make any money with our brother in the pit. Here's some, some slave traders. Let's sell him into slavery. The bottom of the pit is not far enough, and let's send him on. So they raise him out. They send him to slave traders. Off he goes. Terrible story. Judah is not a great guy. He does some pretty terrible things. <laughs> he, I think I already said it, Genesis 37, but to me, Reuben would be the guy that, that bails us out in that story. But we're going to fast forward now many, many years and a lot of heartache, a lot of regret, a lot of thinking through some things, a lot of processing, uh, a, a lot of brokenness. You get to Genesis chapter 44, and these same brothers are required by desperation to go to Egypt, not knowing that it is their brother, Joseph, who has risen in rank and is now the prime minister of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And they're there during a famine to buy food for their families. And after a series of events, it is Judah who is the one who says, You want my brother Benjamin? I will offer my life for him. I will lay. He's the one that wanted to kill Joseph. But there's been a transformation in Judah's life. A transformation so powerful that he's willing to lay down his own life 
for Benjamin so that Benjamin can be spared. In fact, Judah is the one who steps forward to this stranger because it's been so many years. He doesn't know that it's Joseph. And it is, ben, it is uh, Judah who verbalizes and admits and confesses to what he did to his brother. And it's that confession that brings Joseph out of ambiguity and says, I am your brother. You're forgiven and here's all kinds of food and you're moving in with us and it's going to be great. It was Judah who did that who confesses, and it is Judah who gets chosen to be in Jesus' bloodline. Maybe that's why Judah is chosen instead of the three older brothers. We're not told. God simply doesn't tell us why Judah becomes the head of the royal tribe of Judah. The ones that kings begin to come out of, David comes out of that too. God just doesn't. Does it make sense to us? Not in the moment that we're in. If, if Judah were to be standing in that moment, and when Judah is saying, let's sell him into slavery, there's not one of us that would say, you know what, you should be the head of the royal line. Because in that moment, it doesn't make sense. But, but our stories are over our lifetime. I find it equally surprising that several other men listed in the genealogy are not firstborn sons. In fact, I won't bore you with all of it, but Abraham is not the firstborn Isaac is not the firstborn. Jacob is not the firstborn. Judah is not the firstborn. Zerah is not the firstborn. Even King David is not the firstborn. He's the youngest of all the brothers. And this goes against all of the normal inheritance. And you don't see that through a cursory reading of it. You see it when you sit down and you see, what is God actually doing? God is unpredictable. God is using people and he's using times and he's using events in ways that when they were living it, there's no way possible they could know what God was up to. But it's the culmination of these stories in the end that really declare the goodness of God. It's what God does over the long time. And so, so often we try to evaluate our life in a moment. And it's not fair. It's not fair. It's certainly not fair to the righteousness and to the plan of God. God doesn't explain why. He does something in one family and he doesn't do it in another family. He doesn't explain why he allows evil or crime to affect one family member but keeps another family member safe. He doesn't explain why some family members suffer hardship or ill health and other family members never have. The unexplainable nature of God's sovereign plan is seen in the genealogy. But it shows up in your life too. You just can't see it yet. Your life is just another life, but is declaring the goodness of God. Your life, hardship or not, brokenness or not, frustration or not, heartache after heartache after heartache or not, has a significant opportunity to declare the goodness of God to the generations that follow you. In addition to those who walk with you in the day-to-day. So our role is, I guess the first point that I want to make there, is that God is in complete control. Does it catch God off guard that Judah is born forth? No. Does it catch God off guard that he would say, well, because of this, this, and this, I'm going to choose this one and not that one? No. None of these things catch God off guard, and your life doesn't either. God is in complete control, and he's telling a story much larger than yours. 
Your role is not to understand it. I pray that we could figure out how to disconnect from, from desiring to control every aspect or any aspect of our lives. Your role is not to understand it. It's not to control it. Your role is to stay as closely to Him as you can, to honor Him, to obey Him, and to love Him. That is your role. God knew who your parents were going to be. That's why He did not give you an op- option to choose. He did that by design. He planned that they would be healthy and wealthy. He planned that they would be ill and poor Or perhaps they're a mixture of both, that he planned what country you would be born in. The book of Acts says that God establishes our boundaries. I'm really glad that he allowed us to be born after the invention of electricity. Truth is, God not only planned you to be born in this world, but he also planned the world for your birth. These things are matched together. He knows what he's doing, and your awareness of that is trusting him in every mundane moment. Let me me, me try to say it this way, and I'm just going to use Judah. You could use all of these, but I'm just going to use Judah as a really quick illustration. In those 30 years or so between selling his brother to slavery and desperation, standing before the prime minister begging for food, there's so much regret in Judah's life. At any given moment, do you think that Judah would be able to say, I think all of my kids and grandkids are going to be the kings of this place? Not a chance. But it was with confession, contrition, admission, and surrendering to authority that Judah's life began to change. The second lesson that I want to talk about is that God's plans through history are unstoppable. If you read through the genealogy, you quickly observe that even though the plan of God involved weak and sinful men and women, this is not a who's who necessarily. These are names that we kind of know, but this is not a who's who. These are not the greatest hits. No one, though, was able to derail the plan of God. No matter what they did, God was always able to continue His plan with his plan. So Tamar and Judah and Manasseh and Bathsheba and David and Ahaz, they're all responsible for their sin. And I'm in no way saying that God intends for us to sin in ways so that he can use it. What I am saying is, is when you get caught off guard and find yourself in a situation that you know you shouldn't be in, God can redeem it and he can restore it. And he can set your feet back on solid ground. I don't need the chronology to tell me that, though, or the genealogy to tell me that. My life is a good testimony of that. It's obvious, though, that Jesus, though having never sinned, was related to a lot of sinners. (laughs) And and most of the Old Testament is pretty much just a... I mean, you get to the... Oh, now I know why we're told all of these stories. These are all the people that Jesus is going to use to say, look what I can do with these people. I mean, really, though, you look at that, and it looks like, this might look like your, your genealogy. It certainly looks like mine. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and so he doesn't have Joseph's bloodline in him. But for all the Jews, they are not believers. They are not followers of God. For them, it's about identity. And so Matthew is writing to unbelievers who, at that time reading this, would not believe in the incarnation of Jesus. So if Jesus isn't ashamed to be identified by his ancestors... 
He's not going to be ashamed to be identified by his descendants. A bunch of sinners brought into the family of God by faith. But their faith and their stories should impact ours. And Jesus identifying with us is the only way that we can be identified with him. And our identification with him is the only way to transformation and salvation. So here's the point. Even the sin of the forefathers of Jesus was unable to unhook the rail cars of his lineage from the engine of God's divine purpose. And that's what Satan was attempting to do, right? Throughout all of the... You look at this lineage and you find me a section of it where Satan is not trying to derail it. It's because the very first person to hear the gospel message was Satan, Adam, and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And in that passage of Scripture, God himself looked at the serpent and he said, I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. At that moment right there, Satan knows that a Redeemer is coming to restore mankind through humanity. And so what am I going to I'm going to destroy all of humanity. The very, one of the very first things that he does is he rises one brother up against another brother, 50% done. And then over the course of time, there is this, okay, now God moves from a family to all of the nations at Babel, and then they spread out, and then the story narrows back down to Abraham. And now we find out that this promise is given to Abraham. And so what's going to happen? Abraham's people are going to be targeted, and all of a sudden... You begin to have a famine break out. You begin to have these pestilences break out. You begin to have this dispersion that takes place. Then you find people of God in Pharaoh's land. What's Pharaoh decide to do? I'm going to kill all the baby Jew boys. Why? Because Satan now knows that the seed is coming through the Jews. I'm going to destroy the Jews, every one of them. If I can cut them off, if I cut off all the Jews, I cut off the Redeemer. It didn't work. Because God carried his seed in the most unpredictable, obscure places. And he manages to weave his seed through. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes along and he destroys tens of thousands of Jews. Is it Nebuchadnezzar? Is it Satan trying to destroy the ability to produce the Messiah? And then there's Haman who tries to destroy all of the Jews You think it's Haman or is it Satan trying to remove the seed? But you know what God does? He's mysteriously and methodically, but yet unpredictable to us, carrying this seed all the way through the Old Testament. You get up to Herod. Now we know it's going to be in this family, this promise to Mary. What's Herod decide to do? I know what I'll do. I'll kill all of the baby Jews, baby boy Jews, two years and under. That'll wipe them out. Is it Herod or is it Satan? Satan is trying his best to destroy the lineage. And then all of a sudden, it's Jesus is born. And we know who he is. Satan knows who he is. And he's targeted very, very quickly. So it is in your life as well, maybe to a lesser degree. You may have things that come up, things that stump you, things that trouble you maybe even at times control you, but it does not have to derail you. And that's what this story tells us. Jesus' genealogy is proof of that. It's filled with opportunities for derailment. But God, cling to him and he will continue to produce Jesus through you and Christ's likeness through you. Even though your life is 
intersected by sin and you have to take that to the cross. We're not absolving anybody from sin. Only God forgives that. But even though your life is impacted by other sinners, even though your world is governed by Satan who longs to stop the train of God's blessing in your life, it's been proven he can't. He cannot unless you agree with him. You might also notice the inclusion of the names here in verse 13 through 15. Zerubbabel, the father of uh, Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Elohim, and Elohim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Kakim, and Kim, the father. Uh, Eliad and Eliad the father of Eleazar and Eleazar the father of Mathan and Mathan the father of Jacob. There are nine names in just these quick verses and guess what? We know absolutely not one thing of any of them. Not one. The only thing that we know is that their lifetime spans 500 years. Did you know that if you did a quick Google search that every member of the Queen of England or the, I guess the King of England's family line now, you'll find a paragraph of everybody who shares any bit of blood with that line. But you know what? Not in the King of Kings. For generations after generations, we know nothing of. We have no idea of what contribution they made to planet earth. We have no clue if they were godly or if they were ungodly, or if they were followers of Yahweh or if they were idolaters. Time has forgotten why they mattered, but God has not. He has not forgotten them. And the fact that they were somehow used by God in the unstoppable chain of events, God chooses. And this is where I, I know some of this is like big deal. But for some reason... The Holy Spirit gets down in Matthew's name and says, make sure you put their names in. Is it to make a connection? Maybe. I just don't know that the connection, like the genealogy, the part is to be able to do this. Not this one. This one's so much different because it doesn't, it doesn't carry that formula. I couldn't help but think about the fact to this day the gospel of Christ is advanced and unseen and by unknown men and women. I was just thinking about a couple of stories of, of very famous Christian people that you probably don't know their parents' names who taught them and formed them and made them. And we read their books and we read their stories, but we have no idea of the people who empowered them and discipled them. I think of one particular person that I met one time. This was in China when I was over there, and I had some opportunities to meet some incredible, incredible people. One of them I met was a pastor. He's an underground pastor because doing this there is illegal, uh, the way we do it. And he gave us his testimony. Well, over there, if you say you've been to seminary, you say, how, how many years have you been in seminary? And seminary is how many years you've actually spent in prison for your faith because that's where you really learn about your faith in God. And he is in prison and to insult him, I won't be too graphic here, but when the, the, the jailer goes to the bathroom, he uses copies of the scripture to clean himself and he throws it in to the prison with this Chinese pastor. Insulting. And so the Chinese pastor meticulously cleans it off so that he can have access to the Word of God. 
I said, what about your daily life? He said, every day, you know, in China, it's honor. You know, I don't want anybody to think I'm not going to work. So in, in the morning, I get up and I get on the bus and I take the bus to the library and I sit there and study all day because I want all my neighbors to see that I'm getting up and going because if they find out that I'm just studying at home, they'll know that I'm a pastor and it'll be, it'll be bad for me. I said, what about your church? And he says, well, we meet all over the place, usually hidden places. This man, who I don't even remember his name now, pastors 300 at that time, 10 years ago, 300 believers underground, teaching them how to be pastors and disciple makers. We sang a song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, but we couldn't sing it out loud. We had to mime it to each other so that the neighbors wouldn't be able to hear it when we worshiped together. The world is filled with unknown names. I think of a lady in the Ivory Coast. Her name's Madame Elise. Education is really rare there, especially a good one. She has a great one. She gave up everything and moved up to the northern border to start an orphanage where she has poured the last decades of her life in where nobody knows her name. And the local witch doctors and fetishers have come to her and told her that they're going to kill her if she doesn't move away. And she said, you didn't bring me here and you can't send me away. I dare you. I dare you to try to do something to me. And she sits there and makes these, these boys disciples of Jesus Christ, helping them. The world is filled with people that we don't know their names. But for all of us, the genealogy of Jesus reminds us that the same God who guided the unstoppable process of the coming of Christ is guiding the unstoppable progress of his church through his people. Listen, there's, there's a sentiment that I would like to speak to for just a moment. And a lot of people, I think, uh, uh, without thinking, say to themselves, what do I want to be known for? There's this real big push of legacy. Like, I want to leave a legacy. What, what do I want people to remember of me when I go? And you may be guilty of saying, you know, uh, maybe pridefully even, like, my kids, my grandkids, what are they going to think about me when I go? But here's the thing. These names remind us that we shouldn't care if history remembers us. We should care if eternity does. And I would tell you, if you care about your reputation in eternity, your legacy on earth will take care of itself. But if you spend all of your energy on what this world thinks of you, you might, you might miss the most important part of living here. The third lesson is, I'm going to move fast. We already touched on unpredictable, but I want to touch on it briefly again. I found it fascinating that there is zero guarantee from generation to generation in regard to their walk with God. In verse 9, out of nowhere comes Jotham. Jotham was a good man, a good king. He had a son, Ahaz. Ahaz, bad king. Terrible, terrible king. Wicked man. But then you have the mention of Hezekiah, his son, who was a godly king, who came in behind his dad and cleaned out Israel, cleaned out the temple, all the former idolatries, tore down all the idolatrous high places. This is in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20. But Hezekiah's son... Manasseh is described as one of the most wicked kings in the history of the nation. He actually goes in and rebuilds the pagan altars that his dad had torn down. He reinstates idolatry inside the temple. 
that his dad had cleaned out and had sacrificed some of his sons to Molech in the fire. Terrible, terrible guy. In fact, there's a record in his story where God says that he is worse than the Ammonites who were pagans. But then according to 2 Chronicles chapter 33, get this, Manasseh, he's such a terrible guy. And because of that, God allows him to be overtaken. They come in, they put, Babel, Babel comes in, they, they put a nose ring, which is a symbol of safe slavery and ownership, and they drag him onto Babylon. The king of Israel being taken as a slave into wicked Babylon. And you know what Manasseh does? This wicked man who deserves no grace. He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears him. And the Lord allows him to escape his captors, and he goes back to Israel, and he repents, and he gets his life right, and he cleans everything up, and he has a couple of years as a king to do right in the sight of God, and you begin to think to yourself, this is going to change everything. Praise be the Lord. And then Manasseh's son, Ammon, in verse 10, takes the throne, and he ignores the last few years of his dad's life, and he, he spends only the two years that he rules restoring idolatry back into Israel. And you think, oh, now it's going to be messed up for generations. And then he gives birth to a son, Josiah, who turns out to be one of the nation's most godliest reformers. He's only eight years old. His dad ruled two years. So he'd have been six years old when his dad became king. Six years old when his grandfather, Manasseh, died and experienced at six the culmination of a couple of years from four to six, this transformation in his granddaddy. And it was Josiah who found the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they brought them back out for everybody to read, and he ends up leading the nation back to God. You talk about unpredictability. A godly father has an ungodly son who has a godly son who has an ungodly son. I, listen, we can't speak with absolute authority here, but influence sometimes skips a generation. And there are so many lessons to be learned here about the importance of influencing but grandparents, again, can't be conclusive on it from this story, but grandparents could have an incredible amount of influence on their grandchildren, and they should. But parents should also discipline their children at home and disciple their children at home and lead their children at home. This is a way to avoid a roller coaster. If one generation, rather than focusing on the world, can focus on disciple-making, and instilling values into their children, you can avoid the roller coaster that so many families get on. And, and while a father may come to the Lord late in life, chances are the child has already been influenced to a great deal in those formative years. And it does take a village. But if we were to remain faithful, if we were to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, for instance, and we begin to look at what Moses continually, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells him to parents, grandparents, Multiple generations, everybody speaking into their children. You can avoid the roller coaster. And instead, you can begin to build trajectory, which I know what all of us want is that trajectory of faith to the next generation. But you know what? Here's the good news. The roller coaster doesn't derail God's purpose, doesn't get rid of the seed. 
God uses all people from every generation to do exactly what he promised he would do. Well, here's another, here's another lesson. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what, what line you, you, you are on, tests of faith are unforeseeable, but they're every time winnable. Again, story time, verse 9. Uzziah, mentioned in detail in 2 Kings chapter 14, who walks with God and wins victories as he trusts in God for strength and wisdom. All is well, and the future is bright. In fact, he became the king when he was only 16 years old, and he followed God almost all of it. He reigned for 52 years. That is a long, long reign. Somewhere along the way, those 52 years, there were seeds of pride that were sown. Probably his long string of military victories. But again, I don't want to read into the text. But Satan is patiently baiting the hook of self-confidence and pride. And he waited and he waited and he waited. Now, if you go over to Second Chronicles chapter 26, you have the telling and very disastrous biographical statement. The chronicler says this in verse 15 about Uzziah. In Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong he grew proud and to his destruction. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And I'm including this. The rules no longer applied to him. He was the king. He was strong. He was unbeatable. He entered into the temple of the Lord. And he offered incense. A thing a king was, only priests were allowed to do that. The Bible says that immediately leprosy broke out on Uzziah's forehead and he was rushed to the temple in dis- or out of the temple in disgrace. He ended up quarantined for the rest of his life in shame and humility. He started so well for almost all of it. But his strength in the end led to his destruction. Faithfulness to God in the past does not guarantee faithfulness to God in the future. And I want to be careful when I state this because I don't want to scare you, but there are a couple of things that, statements that I want, just, I want us to understand. Satan may have a baited hook for you. And just because things are good right now in your life does not mean he's not waiting and waiting and waiting. It's why it is so important for us to exercise ourselves unto godliness. It's so important that even when you don't think you need growth and you don't think you need devotion and you don't think you need time with God, you need it because there is a hook baited and he is waiting and waiting and waiting. So whatever you do not surrender to God, you can be a believer, you can follow him, but whatever you have not surrendered to him will be baited by Satan. Whatever you keep from him, from God, Satan will use to lure you in. And here's a second part of that same, second 
side of the same token. Whatever you do surrender to God, you have to keep that surrendered. Hezekiah, mentioned in verse 9, started well but ended unfaithfully. In fact, it's so funny, he, he did one of the most, this is a weird, miraculous thing. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, the Lord informed him that he had an illness that would lead to death. Not, not, I'm not talking about Uzziah anymore, it's Hezekiah, similar but not the same. Hezekiah prayed for more time. Who wouldn't do that? I mean, he's the king and he's like, oh, I'm not ready to die. In some weird way, God says, okay, uh, how about 15 more years? Okay, 15 more years. He's going to live 15 more years. And you'd think after that kind of answered prayer, Hezekiah would never doubt God again. But he did. You know what? In fact, later, he grew distrustful of God's protection. And even though he was warned, he made a secret pact with Babylon, and it ultimately was the nation's undoing. If only, I know this sounds terrible, but if only if Hezekiah would have died on time. And I know that some of us, when we pray, but if God would just do this one thing, if he just answers this one prayer, I'll never doubt him again. If he just handles this one issue, I'll never question him again. Don't count on it. You never get to the place in your life where you have outgrown the necessity of growing. Unforeseen tests of faith and obedience are just around the corner. The sad part about it is most people nowadays are taught that if you just make a decision to follow Jesus, that's all you really need. Just say yes to Jesus and you're good. But in my experience, when you say yes to Jesus, that's just the beginning. And, and your faith will be tested and your faith is purified and your growth begins and your sanctification continues until the very end of your life. What these men teach us is that you have to take that faithfulness all the way to the end, not just into old age. Because it may be when Satan finds you old and tired and weak and not as influential as you thought you were at one time. And that's when the bait comes for you. I don't need to pray anymore. I don't need to study the Bible anymore. I already know those sermons. I already know those Bible studies. I already have visited people. I've already cared for people. I've already loved people. I'm just going to sit here and rest. Again, in my experience and in many of yours, winning one battle only prepares you for the next one. Which is why dependence on God should be our life mission. Some of these stories we learn what to do. Some of these stories we learn what not to do. Thank you for being patient this morning. I know this is a hard sermon to listen. If you'll be patient, I think it'll pay off. We're, 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 learning, we're learning how to learn and what Jesus can do with any situation. Next to last. God's plan is unconventional. You don't have to read very long that God is doing things differently than you would imagine. You go over to the book of Genesis and you can start seeing that pretty, pretty quickly. So Matthew is taking, like, let's go, back, let's go back a couple thousand years to what the Jews or the Pharisees would, would think in this. He rubs their nose in it, right? I mean, they don't have the genealogy yet. When Matthew writes, he uses every story that the Jews wish they didn't have in their book. <laughs> well, except for the ones we don't know anything about them. 
So in verse 3, he mentions Judah. We've already talked about Judah. He's the father of two guys, Perez and Zerah. They are twin brothers. But that's typically the formula here. It's like, okay, well, Judah beget Perez and Zerah. They're mentioned together because they're twins. We can give that a pass. But Matthew intentionally tells us who their mother was too. This is, this is a new formula. It's, the goal was to simply to give the bloodline to the Jews. Why would we take this little side gig here, this little side jaunt, and keep going in order to mention Tamar? Well, Judah actually had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Tamar married uh, Ur. Ur died early in life, and it left Tamar a widow. The law stated that the next of kin should care for the brother's widows, so Tamar was given to the second son, Onan. But he also died. This girl might be trouble. Sheila was a little boy. That's the third son of Judah. Sheila is just a little boy. Who names her son Sheila? <laughs> uh, but anyway, I digress. He's not in the line. Uh, Sheila is little. He's just a little boy. And Tamar wants to get married. She wants to have kids. She wants to, to have a family. And Judah's like, well, he's way too young. She's like, yeah, it's gross. And so he says, well, you need to go back to your daddy and wait till Sheila grows up. And when Sheila grows up, you guys can get married. So what does she do? She goes back to her daddy. She lives there. And the time comes for Sheila to be a full-grown man. And Judah's like, yeah, you're too old, or whatever reason he uses, but he doesn't honor the promise. Now, Tamar has been waiting all of this time. I mean, her like childbearing years, her, her, her childbearing years are just about over, and she's been waiting for Sheila, and Judah pulls the rug out from under her. No oh, good Judah. So she dressed up like a prostitute, and she went to Judah, the head of the royal line, you know, remember, good Judah, and she catches him where she knew he would be, and she uh, caught his eye, conceived by him. And listen, it only really gets worse from there. It's Genesis chapter 38. But she has twin sons, Perez and Zerah. Now, it makes sense why the Holy Spirit would include Perez because he's of the bloodline. We need him to continue the genealogy. But why include Zerah and certainly why include the Tamar part? Tamar was actually a Canaanite. So the genealogy of Jesus is only going to get muddier. Again, I'm not saying that she doesn't matter. I'm saying why include her if it's just a genealogy? Does it make sense? Further, why mention women at all? This is a legal document. Women in the first century were not legal heirs. They weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law. What is Matthew doing? If you go down to verse 5, you have a record that Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed, except it doesn't say that. It's said by Rahab. Now, we've already spent a little time here recently, but... She wasn't someone who dressed up like a prostitute. She was a prostitute, a career prostitute. And even though she's rescued from the walls of Jericho, you know, they're come tumbling down, and she marries a prince from Israel, Sam, and her tagline and her remembrance, if you get over to Hebrews chapter 11, thousands of years after Rahab, Hebrews 11 calls her Rahab the harlot. She never outlives it. To this day, 2,000 years after that, we're still referring to her. 
For starters, not everybody identifies with Abraham. But there ain't a person in this room that can't identify with Rahab. This is a subtle reminder of the Holy Spirit through Matthew's pen. Hey, this isn't about just tracking blood. This is about what I can do through a people that are not perfect. I can use Canaanites. I can use Galileans. I can use kings. I can use peasants. I can use idolaters. There's nobody that I can't use to produce Jesus. This chronology includes the gambit of of any background or anything you're trying to overcome or any fear you have of the future. This chronology overcomes it of who God chooses to use. Rahab was a harlot, but that's not all she was. And if you want to focus on that part of it and say, oh yeah, God can use harlots. Rahab was also the only Moabite that was interested in the God of Israel. She was the only one. And when the spies left her home and they escaped, they told her to hang a scarlet cord out her window. This is in Joshua chapter 2. Now, I need you to buckle up for just a moment because I'm going to share something with you that, that I feel like is for all of us. And they said, if you'll take the scarlet cord and you'll run it out your window, when we come back to destroy Jericho, we'll actually pres- preserve you. Without, boy, anybody will know to, pre- to preserve you and all of your family. Now, the reason that I bring that up is if you read it in English, you will probably miss it. But when you read it in Hebrew, it's impossible to miss. The usual word for cord is aboth. It means a woven, a woven cord or a ro- woven, many threads woven together. It's what we would call a rope uh, today. But that's not the word that is used in Joshua chapter 2, verse 2. Instead, it's a word that every other time, 34 times in fact, in all of the Old Testament, it's the word tikvah. The word tikvah is hope every other time it's used except for Joshua chapter 2. So I want us to go back now and say, why would the translators use this? Well, because that's literally what it is, but figuratively what she is doing is she's lowering hope out her window. And this word actually isn't just rope or a cord. It's hope that is attached to something else on the other end. It's something with something else on the other end. That's actually the Hebrew definition for hope. Something with something else on the other end. So what is your hope in? I think that's why it's translated hope. Imagine this Rahab, hopeless, but now staked everything on her hope in a forgiving, accepting God. And, and God uses these stories to set up the Christmas story. Matthew works his way through these awkward family moments, and he culminates all of that with this. Story after story after story, heartbreak, sad story, sometimes a good story, but it ends bad, over and over and over and over. These are nobodies. These are everybody's. Verse 18. Regardless. That, that doesn't define what God's about to do. And I love that. Jesus came into our shame to remove it. 
Jesus came out of our excuses to remove them. And this morning I want to encourage you that whatever it is that you're using, whether it's sin or whether it's family or whether it's fear or somebody set you up to fail or somebody else has affected you in some way or you've made some really, really bad decisions that you regret every moment of your life, you need to have hope hanging out your window. Because when this world comes tumbling down, he's going to come in and he's going to rescue everybody who has their hope exposed. And that's the story of Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now in us. And one day for all eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is clear that you have called us to be like Christ. We cannot do that work alone. We are desperate for Christ in us. And, and while we give a verbal assent or we give a, some kind of a, you know, a, a confession that we believe in you, Lord, I, I think that sometimes we use a lot of excuses of, of time and I'm not smart enough, I don't have en enough, I, I, you know, one, one day I will or I already have or we, we tell ourselves all sorts of things, I'm just a nobody or I'm too good for that or whatever it is that keeps us from obedience. I pray that today that you would remind us that our excuses aren't good enough. Our excuses aren't good enough. There is no reason not to surrender all of us to all of you. We've seen today that you are faithful regardless. And faithful doesn't always mean that we get what we want. Sometimes faithful means that if we sin, we pay the consequences. But faithful also means that if we obey you, you are with us as our Emmanuel. And so, Lord, I pray that today that we would consecrate ourselves to you and what we have surrendered to you, we would keep surrendered to you and what things we have not surrendered, we would recognize, Lord, bring that to the forefront of our memory and whatever it is that keeps us, whatever it is that keeps us from obedience, whatever it keeps us away from you, whatever keeps us content in this world, I pray that you would bring it to our mind or that you would tear it out from under us. Lord, there's not a person in this room that hasn't, that has sinned in a way that can't be restored. That doesn't come from a, a family line of embarrassment that can't begin again for the next generation. Lord, I pray that today we would, we would set a rock-solid vow to worship you, not just in the morning or not just before bed or not just on Sundays or not just when we're with our Christian friends, but we would live in worship to the King of Kings. 
I pray, Lord, as we were reminded of all of these stories, they are preserved for a reason. That's not just a history book. This is not just a genealogy. You are reminding us that you have allowed us to live at this time in this place for this reason. We are here by your establishment, so therefore we are yours. Lord, I'm afraid that there may be some today here that have not made you the Lord of their life. They're trying to establish whatever kind of bloodline they can, whatever kind of legacy and remembrance that they can apart from you. Lord, help us today to to know for sure that our very best day is not worth remembering apart from you. And we love you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace and thank you for reminding us of your grace today and the hope that you have placed in our hands and that we know what it is tethered to. And we ask you to be glorified in our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? And if you're here this morning and you've not made a commitment to follow Jesus, or maybe you've made a commitment, but you're, you recognize you're filled with excuses. Maybe you don't even know what your next step may be to follow him more closely. Maybe you've made a decision to follow Jesus, but you know that you are not. It's just verbal. I believe in God, but I'm not trusting him as my Savior. Would you, would you be bold enough to come up here and, and let us pray together? Take an opportunity to receive Christ, to surrender yourself to him, make him the Lord of your life so that he can chart your course for you. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.